0: Hello, and welcome to Totally Buggin', the podcast about all things creepy-crawly. We are your host organisms, Cammie
1: and Faith. Cammie, do you know where fruit comes from?
0: Um, I think usually trees.
1: Trees, plants, all kinds of stuff. Flowers. Flowers. And... Do you know probably what the most important biological process is for fruit?
0: Well, I can only assume that it's pollination.
1: You are so right, Cammie. It is pollination. But we learn about pollination in school, but I don't think we really learn about it step by step and as much detail as we're going to get into today, because there is two perspectives that you can look at pollination. There's the flower perspective, and then there's the insect perspective, which I realized during my research are very, very different.
0: I'm very intrigued.
1: So um, let's get into how pollination works. So first we're going to start with the flower perspective. And for a flower, pollination begins when a vector chooses it. I say chooses in air quotes, and you'll see why. Um, Chooses to transfer pollen onto it. And a vector in this scenario is anything that can move pollen. So insects is a big one, which we'll get into in the second half.
0: Does a vector have to be a living thing? Could it also be like the wind
1: no, you're get- that's my next one, actually. Okay. So vectors don't have to be living things. Um, it can also be wind, water, birds, and other animals. And when I thought of other animals, have you ever seen the photos of field mice sleeping in flowers?
0: I have not, but that sounds adorable.
1: It is adorable. And you should look it up after we're done. But all of those things can help pollinate flowers, and pollination itself is the way that plants spread their genetic material and create new plants. In other words, how they have offspring, have babies. So how this starts is the vector, which can be any of the things we've already talked about, will move the pollen that is located on the stamen. Cammie, do you know what a stamen is?
0: Um, I always get these too mixed up, but um, I know there's the pistol and the stamen, and one of them is like the stick part, and the other one is like the sticky round part on the top that's like flat.
1: Yeah, so the stamen is the male anatomy on a flower, which contains a filament, which is the long, thin, stem-like structure that holds up the anther, and the anther is the structure where the pollen is presented to the vectors. I kind of think of it as like a little landing pad for pollen. It's just like if you ever smell a flower and then you get pollen on your nose, you are rubbing your face on the anther. That sounds dirty, but okay. <laughs> Maybe a little. <laughs> so a vector will somehow move this pollen from the stamen, the male part of the flower, to the pistil or the female part of the flower. And the pistil is made up of the stigma, which is the top sticky part that you were talking about, the pollen tube, the style, and the ovary, which contain the ovules and the receptacle. And these are all the female parts of the plant that produce eventually seeds and fruit. So once the pollen is moved to the stigma, the sticky part, the pollen may germinate. This means that the pollen tube will be formed on the stigma and grows down into the ovule of the flower. After the pollen tube is grown the pollen will travel down into the ovule of the plant and then from here three different things can happen to the plant. So the first one I would say what hopefully happens most of the time is the plant will become fertilized and produce fruit or seeds to reproduce. If the plant produces a fruit or vegetable, such as strawberries, zucchinis, pumpkins, any fruit or vegetable you could think of, even I think nuts get pollinated as well, because like almond flowers.
0: Yeah, nuts are a type of seed.
1: Yeah, so nuts would also be pollinated the seeds will be on the inside or outside of this fruit and will most likely rely on outside forces to spread them. For example, if an animal eats a fruit and then spreads the seeds, (laughs) the seeds will have a chance to grow into a new plant. And also, if a plant produces just seeds, like a dandelion, They will rely on other factors, like the wind and different kinds of interference, to spread their seeds.
0: Like wishes for a dandelion.
1: Yes, I love picking dandelions and, like, just blowing their seeds everywhere. It's very fun. If you haven't already this summer, listeners, go wish on a dandelion. And they will rely on the wind or other interference to spread their seeds. Uh, consumption is still an option here, but there are other methods as well with fruit I think fruit I think main the main way is consumption that their seeds are spread but I think you can get a little creative with how all these different plants
0: well that's why that's why fruits and vegetables are nice to eat because the plant needs to attract some sort of mm-hmm. vector that's going to Move around. The sea. Yes.
1: Oh, you're right. Evolutionarily, that would be why plants taste good, like fruits and vegetables taste good.
0: Right. It would be pretty costly to do that if there weren't any benefit for the for the plant. Oh, mm-hmm. I also have a question. Yeah, sure. So you talked about male and female parts of a, f- a plant. Yeah. Um, are those within the same plant, or are there like girl flowers and boy flowers?
1: We're actually going to get into that in a little bit. Okay. All right. Preview. And this is, <laughs> yeah, and this is just like in general for most flowers. I'm sure there's, since it's we're talking about nature, we can't use the term always. Like, this will always be how this happens, because that's not how science works. There are always exceptions. But the male and female parts of the flower do get interesting. And then once the seeds are spread, after being fertilized, um, they will grow into new plants capable of producing new flowers, being pollinated, and in turn reproducing. This conclusion of the process is considered to be a successful pollination and reproduction. But since we have such a thing as successful pollination, we also have unsuccessful pollination. And these are the other two things that can happen um, once a plant has been pollinated. So the first thing is that a plant could only be partially fertilized, which means the fruit or seeds do not fully develop, which means they won't be spread or spread to completion. And finally, the plant can completely fail uh, to be pollinated and fertilized and then unable to reproduce at all. So there are a lot of different factors that go into pollination and we'll get into this more with the insect perspective, but a lot of them have to do with luck and different ways that on the plant ends, they can attract um, different vectors, like you were saying. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And usually pollination occurs between two different flowers of the same species. I say usually because there are always exceptions. Um, there's a specific word for it um, in genetics for when different, two different species are able to mate and produce offspring, but usually the offspring is infertile. I just can't remember the exact word for it. So that would be...
0: Isn't it interbreeding?
1: I think so. That would be an example of like two different flowers. That would be an example of an exception to the same species rule. But usually pollination can only occur between two different between two flowers of the same species. Uh, for example, two strawberry plants are next to each other and they are both flowering if a strong wind comes along or some other vector, and blow some pollen from the anthers of the first plant onto the stigma of the second plant, this scenario could result in a successful pollination. And this is referred to as cross-pollination. And I believe this was your question earlier. And this is the option where there is more genetic genetic diversity among the offspring of these two plants. But some plants can also self-fertilize. Like your lemon tree like my lemon tree. Faith got her lemon tree by the way. I I did. I have my lemon tree now. So this is what my lemon tree would do. Since it can self-fertilize, the pollen on the anthers of the flower would travel to the stigma of the same flower. So it would travel like a smaller distance because we're talking about the same flower now that can be that can self-pollinate itself and this is also considered a, su- a successful pollination, but evolutionarily could lead to problems with the genetic, genetic diversity between plants. Just because limited gene pool, eventually.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a tad incestuous. Just a tad.
1: I tried to think of a metaphor to explain that, but they all got a bit icky. <laughs> <laughs> now you might be thinking, wait a minute, isn't this podcast about insects? Where are all the insects? So now we can get into the insect perspective of pollination, which is actually pretty interesting because I didn't know this beforehand, but from an insect's perspective, pollination kind of happens by accident. Like, most insects are not intentionally pollinating things. So insects will pollinate flowers because they are using the flowers for their own purposes and happen to pollinate the flower. For example, bees will collect pollen on the anthers to make honey, and while flying or crawling on the flower, will step or bump into the stigma of the same flower.
0: Many species Many species of bee also eat pollen as a source of protein.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, they'll bump into the stigma of the same flower or another flower. And butterflies will also, will do a similar thing. But instead of looking for pollen, they're interested in eating the nectar that is made by f- the flowers for a meal. And like you said, this is because...
0: Bees also eat the nectar. The nectar is what gets turned into the honey, not pollen.
1: Oh, Fake, fake news on my part. <laughs> but most insects are eating or collecting some part of the flower for protein and other nutritional characteristics, like you said. And while they're collecting these, I'll say, flower products, they'll gather pollen on their bodies from the anthers and transfer it to the stigma, which can result in pollination. And because they are pollinating, most of these insects can be referred to as pollinators. And they just unintentionally pollinate flowers because of their own activity. I thought that was really interesting.
0: Yeah, that was a really good way of um, laying it out for people who aren't as familiar with the concept because, you know, we talk about, you know, save the bees and all that, but When people talk about pollinators and a pollinator garden, um, Mm -hmm. it's kind of nice to have that more in-depth mechanical understanding of how that process actually works. And I feel like I knew pretty well the insect perspective, but you've definitely informed Mm -hmm. me on the way that it works for the flower.
1: And there's actually, I wanted to go on a little sidetrack about some of the research That has been uh, being done on these flowers and how they actually attract pollinators. Sure. And, um, oh my gosh, also predator insects to eat pests. So it's a theory in the ecology world that flowers and the plant as a whole can change slightly different things about themselves depending on what's going on with the insects on them. So say a flower in a plant is having a problem with pests. It can increase its volatiles to attract, volatiles meaning smells, to attract predator insects like bees, wasps, to eat the pest insects that are on it. Oh,
0: that's clever. So
1: that's clever. Mm-hmm. There's different factors that go into the plant. That affect how the insect behaves a lot and it's not understood very well. Like things such as the smell and the color for in for insects are great attractors that the plant has some control over and it can like possibly like produce more smell, basically, if it's having a problem.
0: That's so interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. I really like that research. I wanna I wanna read more about it. And then hey, there, you could even do I some also, of it. Ooh, we could. In grad school. We could or in, your in lab grad now. school.
0: I don't know. Yeah, I don't, your girls I don't know are... what you guys do. <laughs>
1: um, what do I do? I basically do stuff for other people. Yeah,
0: someone asked me, um, actually one of my grandparents asked me what you do in your lab because we were talking about the podcast. <laughs> And I was like, yeah. huh, I don't know. So I know she waters nematodes. I don't really understand how that works.
1: Um, oh, that OK, but, that's actually really funny. They're like in yeah. little traps and like they make they're used in like a choice assay. And then we keep them after the choice assay is done to count them. So to water them, I just have to, like, put water in the bottom of their Petri dishes so that they won't die. I do a lot of, like, silly little things like that. and then You do a lot of pro-
0: maintenance where you kind of stick yeah. your fingers in a lot of different projects. Even if you're not the yes. one doing the majority of the experiment, you do a majority of the upkeep. Yeah. So you're kind of like the unsung hero of a bit of an eclectic lab. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Okay, that was actually funny because I had to prep for my vacation by, like, telling multiple different people how to do the stuff I've been doing, and I've never had to do that in a job before. Like, I've never had to, like, I've never had to prep people to be like, hey, I'm gonna be gone, you need to make sure that this happens, because I've been the one that's been doing it.
0: Yeah, when my internship ended last year where I was working in mm-hmm. the honeybee pathogen lab, I had to mm-hmm. write a note or I wrote a bunch of notes for the person who would eventually come take over that job for me and finish a yeah. <laughs> group of experiments. Um, mm-hmm. So I had like a notebook and I like wrote certain pages where I was like, okay, this is where you find this, this and this. This is what that is labeled here's how you oh, do I this do particular computer program. Here's the trick to making mm-hmm. it not timeout and uh, delete all of your data. Yeah. And I, the last day of my internship, I was straight up running around just like adding sticky notes to things.
1: <laughs> like, oh, oh no! God,
0: like,
1: <laughs> they need to know where the samples are. <laughs> they need to know where this is. They need to know where that is. I do find that very funny that like, that is a certain percentage of our job. Like, when you leave, you have to figure out how to tell everybody coming back. Like, hey, this is how I've been doing the things I've been doing. Um, please don't mess up the lab while I'm gone. <laughs> okay. Um, getting back to what we were actually talking about. Um, there are lots of different types of pollinator insects, which I didn't think about. Um, While bees and butterflies are usually the first pollinator insects that come to mind, and that's obvious because I use them in all my examples, there are many different pollinator insects, such as flies, wasps, moths was a surprising one for me, beetles, and even mosquitoes.
0: Mosquitoes are a type of fly, babe.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, wait, you're right, yeah.
0: But yes, yes. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. And in the U.S. alone, there are 4,000 species of native bees, Mm -hmm. which are very important for pollination because I feel like most people, including myself, like this was a preconceived notion I had, um, I thought like, oh, kept honeybees are doing a lot of the pollination. And it's like, no, honey, (laughs) native bees, native bees are where it's at. And
0: and that's not to say that honeybees don't contribute to
1: pollination. No, no.
0: But a a lot of native plants and native bees are specific to one another. So if native bees are losing their habitat or having other issues where their populations decline, then nothing goes to pollinate that particular plant. Or the reverse, if we're losing some of the native plant that ends up uh, causing declines in native bee populations because they only eat that one thing. It's kind of like the milkweed and the butterflies, or the monarch butterflies specifically, I mean. Mm -hmm. We'll get into that a little bit later when it's my section, but...
1: Yeah. Oh, speaking of milkweed, I've also been dabbling with milkweed beetles recently, Because there's some milkweed around my house, but I can only find milkweed beetles.
0: Yeah, so now that I know what a milkweed beetle looks like, I've been seeing them everywhere.
1: Yeah, they are out. They are in season. I picked one up the other day to take a selfie with it. It's a really cute selfie, actually. Like, I look hideous, but the beetle looks great. Anyway, he was screaming the whole time. Well, he or she. I shouldn't gender bugs. They were screaming the whole time.
0: You know, it's They're interesting. not happy about having
1: their picture taken
0: because I don't think I've independently found any milkweed beetles that weren't physically attached to another milkweed beetle.
1: I saw that a few weeks ago. They were all like getting busy. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Nature. The ones
1: I saw the the ones I saw the other day have separated now, so it must be they must be done with it. So there are four thousand species of native bees. 750 species of butterflies, 30,000 species of beetles, and thousands of wasps and flies that contribute to pollination that is essential to pretty much everything agricultural. Mm
0: -hmm. And because uh, taxonomy is so fraught for lack of a better word it's very difficult to get exact numbers so i have a couple of numbers too and none of them are quite the same as the estimates that you have because different people estimate the number of species in different ways they define species slightly differently they might be counting certain subspecies as one or separating them so anytime you look up uh you know bees are doing this percent of pollination it's an estimate and you're going to find 18 different numbers and the same thing with the number of species that are doing any given thing it's going to vary from every single source that you look at
1: yeah numbers in science vary a lot depending on who is saying what and it's just because like people do different things different ways that is a good point though to bring yeah up.
0: and um you know, it's specifically with trying to observe certain things. Um, it's it's an approximation based on a smaller sample size, basically. So a lot of times for those estimates, it'll be that somebody spent a summer counting how many of a certain species visited a particular. S- sample size of plants and then quantified that and then scaled it up to include like all of the agricultural food crops. So, you know, there's a lot of extrapolation. It's difficult to get exact numbers in an estimate. So if I end up saying a number that contradicts what you just said, um, no, I didn't. Or at least it's not my fault.
1: (laughs) No, absolutely. Um, and it is also estimated that these insects contribute about $29 billion to farm income each year. So a lot of these insects are doing a like the largest part of agricultural work for all of our food. And this also means that every fruit, vegetable, and source of fiber was at some point pollinated by an insect. And I imagined like walking into a grocery store and just looking at just the produce section and then realizing like every single piece of fruit and vegetable like started as a flower that had to be pollinated and then expanding that to every single grocery store in the country. Like that's insane. And
0: expanding it to every single product in the grocery store because all of the meats,
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I guess not the seafood maybe, but um, all of like the yeah, livestock me- was fed mm-hmm. something that was a pollinated plant and all mm-hmm. the processed foods like cereals come from grain yeah. which all the fiber all, all the that grain stuff mm-hmm. so honestly everything you eat if you go back far enough you can attribute it to a pollinator
1: yeah it was just Even like a, a bit burp. of a you're right. Even a cheeseburger, because you have like lettuce, tomato, the bread. The cow had to be fed, like some kind of grass or plants that at some point had to be pollinated or fertilized. The
0: milk to make the cheese, you needed that same cow, or maybe not the milk the same to make cow, the cheese. But, you know,
1: but a cow. <laughs> Man, I'm kind of having a mind blow moment. Oh
0: my god! When I took the, I took a parasitology class, and yeah. I was the only entomology person in there. Everybody else was like vet <laughs> science. So I like made myself look like an idiot because we were talking about something that specifically um, tends to be spread around meat cows. And I raised my hand and asked if, you know, if that applied to dairy cows. And the Mm -hmm. professor looked at me like I was an idiot. And he was like, dairy cows are meat cows. I was like, well, I didn't know that. Dairy cows or meat cows? Yeah, I thought they got retired when they were, like, done producing, but I guess they slaughter them. I didn't realize that. Um, I've never been to a farm. A, I don't know.
1: No, as a native Pennsylvania farm girl, and my dad is shaking his head in the kitchen, there are two different types of cows for dairy and meat. Because milk cows are black and white. They're a specific type, I don't remember, but then meat cows are usually brown and white.
0: Right, and the white cows make white milk, and the brown cows make
1: chocolate <laughs> milk,
0: and the pink cows yes. make strawberry milk. Everybody knows this.
1: You, you heard it here, the pink cows make strawberry milk.
0: hmm it's true.
1: I'm pretty sure there are, like, different breeds of cows, though, and, like, one cow is meant for, like, dairy cattle, and then another breed of cow or several breeds of cow is meant for like meat cattle.
0: Yeah, well, I was so embarrassed cuz all of these like veterinary science students are like Aww. are like snickering at chuckling
1: me. at you. And then, but then
0: then the last unit is specifically on like um like insect parasites.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so I was like, "Oh." <laughs> Um, I'm the only one who knows what they're talking about now. Like, um, how many... The
1: superiority.
0: And the, the professor, we had a different professor for the second half of the class. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. um, he's so like, how many, how many legs does an insect have? And I confidently raised my hand. Six. Six? They have six? I was not the first person to raise my hand.
1: Oh, did I ever tell you about the joke my boss played on me on New Year's, not New Year's, um... April Fools?
0: No, go for it.
1: He texted. We have a group chat on Discord. Yes, everyone. My lab communicates through Discord, um, which I find very funny. But he texted our group chat and was like, "Hey guys, I need help immediately in the lab." And it's like maybe nine o'clock. I'm in my pajamas and a face mask, but I'm like, "I'm on campus. I can be there in ten minutes." What do you need? And he uh, he says. I don't know how many legs this insect is supposed to have. And I'm like, is he serious? Like, in my head, I'm thinking, is he serious? And I'm like, I say in the group chat, uh, six? Question mark. Don't don't they all have six? And then he was like, ha ha, everyone, April fools. Very funny. I appreciated the dad joke. Also, breaking news. I've been passed a note by my father about the dairy cow versus meat cow they are the same species but there are many different breeds i rest my case
0: okay thank you Mm -hmm. mr Mahalik.
1: yes anyway back to what we were originally talking about clearly pollination is an extremely important biological process that is essential to humans and wildlife but pollinator insects are having trouble doing their jobs and Cammie, I'm going to hand things over to you now so you can discuss how to help different pollinator insects. Yeah,
0: sure. Um, so, mm-hmm. we're going to talk about the same uh, total bummers that we talk about every week. But,
1: you Ugh, know, the same total bummers, uh-huh. the big three. Yep.
0: <laughs> exactly. I, I literally <laughs> wrote a big three later on. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm just going to start by emphasizing, you know, the vast impact of pollinators they're not just bees um they're not even just insects uh, it also includes mm-hmm. birds bats and other mammals um you have yeah, almost certainly a been a pollinator at some point just by brushing up against a plant if you're me then you have deliberately been a pollinator with a q-tip because wait humans count yeah
1: <gasps> i didn't know that wait can we go pollinate stuff sure sure I would like to go pollinate things. That you can fun. get
0: a Q-tip and pollinate your lemon tree once it flowers. Ooh, That's what I've been doing with my, do my squash plant. But, I should do um, that. Yeah, so since we're an entomology podcast and not a broader biology podcast, we're going to focus on mm-hmm. insect pollinators. Um, the <sighs> USDA estimates that Three quarters of flowering plants and 35% of food crops depend on Mm -hmm. animal pollinators to reproduce. So you might have seen the ad where they're like, we took away one third of their dinner to uh, prove a point about the importance of bees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like it's a corny commercial, but um, yeah. But, I think it's
1: a good visual, Yeah, though. it is a
0: good visual. Like, imagine your plate full of food, and then imagine a third of it gone. That's what would happen if we lost pollinators.
1: So no more servings of veggies. Mm-mm. Well, no more anything. Probably meat, too. Yeah. I was going to say, if you go far enough back, some maybe, like, I don't know, art, like, artificial products? I don't know why I thought tofu, because tofu isn't an artificial product.
0: It's processed, but it does come from a plant. It's from soybeans. But anyway, um, one thing I did want to emphasize, in addition (laughs) to (laughs) bees and butterflies that we normally talk about in terms of insects.
1: Hold on. Hold on. I'm sorry. My dog is squeaking into me. That's okay. One hour later.
0: So beetles are estimated to pollinate 88% of plant species due to their sheer number. Depending on the estimate you look at, beetles are the most populous uh, insect order, but, you know, it really does depend on who you ask, because people who study Coleoptera, they're a little bit partial to the Coleopterans.
1: (laughs) Partial to the Coleoptera. Mm -hmm. Good for them.
0: Yeah, so native bees are also responsible for a plurality of pollination services. Among bees, they are the majority. So when we say save the bees, this is not exclusive to honeybees. So why do we need to save them? So 28% of bumblebee species are in decline, uh, including there's one... Species of bumblebee that has officially been listed as endangered in the U.S. The rusty patched bumblebee, Bombus affinis. Not the bumbles. Yeah, so that one I specifically had to be on the lookout when I used to do field work because if mm-hmm. I caught that one, I was supposed to let it go. I never ended up finding any, but um, yeah, you know, in theory, uh, nineteen
1: in theory. percent
0: of butterflies in the U.S. are at risk of extinction. Including mm-hmm. the iconic monarch butterfly.
1: No, I'm, I'm working on it. Don't worry. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, several species of non-native lady beetles and other invasive mm-hmm. beetles have overtaken natives and threatened yeah. those species. And mm-hmm. 50% of leafcutter bees and 27% of mason bee species are at risk. So insect pollinator species are broadly in decline. This is not good. It should be obvious that fewer pollinators leads to less pollination, which leads to less food for us and other animals. It is not an exaggeration to say that if we do not slow pollinator decline, people will die.
1: No, yeah, for sure. That's not...
0: I mean, like, you should should care about conservation for its own sake, but if you don't you know, you should care about your
1: grandkids' future. You know what I'm saying? I was going to say, we could see the ramification of all of these environmental issues within our own lifetimes, if not our kids' lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And you can you can definitely argue that you're starting to see the ramifications now. It, I just think that, like, maybe me in the U.S., I'm not, like... I don't see it in person, but like if you watch any nature documentary, they're going to talk about the ice caps melting mm-hmm. because they are, and this is just another example of we're destroying the planet. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's it's bleak. Um. Let's talk about yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the causes. What can we do? What can we do? I'm going to talk it? about the causes. Oh, sorry. First causes. And, then, and then I'll get into what we can do. Um. Yes. So. It's the same stuff that we bring up week after week. In interest of mm-hmm. moving through the bleak bit as quickly as possible, I'm just going to hit on the mm-hmm. big three bad ones.
1: The big three. So
0: first we have habitat loss. Yep. If pollinators have nothing to eat, they will die. It is mm-hmm. that simple. If pollinators have nowhere to lay their eggs, there will not be any baby pollinators. It is that simple. Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: number two is pesticide use. Chemical pesticides are broad killers. They do not only kill the pest that you're trying to get rid of. Pollinators are killed by pesticides just as well as pests are.
1: Yes. And third
0: uh, is disease. Managed honeybees mm-hmm. are kept in crowded conditions where they allow disease to spread within and without a hive very quickly. So if you have a bunch of yeah. hives in very close proximity, that is you know similar to you know a big city or an urban area for humans yeah um, that's a breeding ground for disease
1: yeah as history has shown Mm -hmm. time and time again
0: so then those germs get left on plants and then picked up by Mm -hmm. other pollinators so yeah this is part of what I was studying last year for my internship Mm -hmm. I was Uh, screening for a bunch of different pathogens and trying to see some patterns in how we could predict when they would show up. Yeah. All right. So those are the causes. Mm -hmm. What can we do? Mm -hmm. So for combating habitat loss, that's what we'll start with. If you have a Mm -hmm. yard, there's actually quite a lot that you can do to provide pollinator habitat space in your home. And I have Mm -hmm. two categories of action for this one, low effort and no effort. Oh, I like those. All right, which one do you want to hear first? Low or no? Um, let's go with low. Okay, so some low effort options. Ditch the monoculture lawn. No grass, no problem.
1: You know I hate the it, they're monoculture so ugly. Lawn. I hate them. Um, they, I think it was, okay, may I go on a history tangent? Yeah, sure. So the monoculture lawn came into fashion in like the 17th century Because it basically meant like, hey, I can waste a butt ton of space having nothing growing on it. I'm so rich. I don't have to use all of my lands for crop. I can just use a bunch of it for nothing.
0: Ooh, Look at me. I can waste resources.
1: It became a status symbol of like, oh, I can waste resources. That mean I must have so much money. Like, I have so much land that I can just afford to waste a bunch of it to make it look pretty. Mm-hmm. And then the golf courses. Don't, don't get me started on the golf uh, courses. Yeah. It makes me angry. Okay, so... Boycott golf. Yeah.
0: Within your own lawn, um, you can mm-hmm. allow wildflowers to grow in patches where grass has died off. Um, it's, mm-hmm. You can easily buy wildflower seed mixes that are specific to your region that have native seeds, for very Mm -hmm. cheap in bulk. Um, or you can get seed bombs and have them be like a party favor. Um, sprinkle or toss the seeds in the dead patch and it'll make your lawn much more pollinator friendly and much prettier.
1: I actually have a question about that. So recently I was at Barnes and Nobles (laughs) and I saw this little, it was like one of those grow your own flower things. Um, it's like a small pot where like you can start your own seeds in it and it had like save the pollinator kind of branding stuff on it how is that going to do um,
0: anything if it's indoors
1: <laughs> no it's not indoors it's outside oh, oh okay sorry but I did want to ask no you're fine how like how effective do you think like little things like that could be and I also see like what are they called, like little bee hotels for sale sometimes?
0: Yeah, so both of those can be a a step in the right direction for making your individual space friendly for attracting and housing pollinators. It's not going to fix everything. Um, No. It's not going to really prevent additional loss of habitat, but you can kind of try to make up for that by having some habitat gains in your spaces that you have control over to try to even that out a little bit.
1: Yeah, there's, there's not much that like people as individuals can do other than improving the land that they have to be more friendly to the insects that are in trouble
0: you're right and um also like some people who do have big yards like Mm -hmm. if you have land or a big yard like you can actually make like a pretty big impact on the environment by doing these things yeah um but of course you know larger political action is necessary in terms of conservation Mm -hmm. and other environmental causes
1: but you know it's activism more, is always good if you're into that
0: yeah it's more helpful for us to do little things on our own than yeah. to do nothing
1: yeah it's all about like what you can because it what you can it do it makes do me feel very depressed in to think yourself. that
0: there's absolutely nothing that I can do so even if what I'm yeah. doing is a small impact it is I want to do that nothing. saying And that is what is in my ability to do, so I'm going to do it.
1: Yeah, I like that. Mm -hmm. I like that mentality instead of, oh, I can't fix it on my own, so I should just do nothing or even do whatever I want and make the problem worse.
0: Yeah, and if if everybody does these small things...
1: It will add up.
0: Yes, yes. Okay, so, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and, you know... My low effort stuff is doing a small thing. My no effort stuff is literally Mm. like doing less than what you're already doing. So we'll get to that in a second. So next I have plant native perennials in your landscape. Mm -hmm. So you'll save some money by choosing a perennial that'll come back every season over a short lived annual and you'll feed some Mm -hmm. pollinators. If you're in Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. I recommend echinacea or the purple coneflower as a good start Mm -hmm. because it attracts... Bees, butterflies, birds, beetles, and the flowers are edible to humans as well.
1: Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. They're
0: pretty. They're expensive. You can get them at most landscape stores.
1: I also think maybe black eyed Susans are a native perennial. I'm not sure. They're native can... to
0: somewhere. Let me find out.
1: <laughs> they're native to. Everything is native to somewhere. I think that just might be a common flower in like the. Perennial wide, not perennial, though like wildflower mixes that you can buy at the store. I should get more pots for the seeds that I have. I just remembered. I can make a little garden towards the back wall in my backyard.
0: Okay, yes. Black-eyed Susans are native to Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so one other thing that you can do that's low effort is add a bee house for cavity dwellers. So lots of native bees, Mm -hmm. like leafcutter bees, mason bees, live in cavities in wood. They They live in holes, basically. So if you add a bee house, that'll provide space for bees
1: I love the little bee eggs. houses. I I see them out sometimes.
0: I like them. Or bee hotels. I love the bee hotels.
1: I need to take you The yes, do like you remember them. the park we went to for my birthday? They have a bee hotel. I love the bee hotel.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> well, <anybody who laughs> Hello. Room service? Sometimes you can sometimes you can see them like mm-hmm. walking around in there. It's pretty cool.
0: Mhm. Yeah, all right, so now we can get into my no-effort suggestions for small things that you can... These I want to hear. In this case, not do. No,
1: oh, not do, okay. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Mow less.
1: Mow less. mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Mowing
0: the lawn kills ground-dwelling insects rather violently. Yeah. And it removes wildflowers that are a great food source for pollinators.
1: And it's less effort on your part.
0: Mm -hmm. a 50 percent reduction in the amount of time you spend mowing or the frequency that you mow Mm -hmm. can make a big impact on the lives of pollinators basically
1: that's a good one that I wouldn't think about
0: yeah so if you mow your lawn every week yeah skip a week
1: so you just do it every other week Mm -hmm. and that amount of time like wouldn't I don't think it would be enough for your yard to become, like, unruly.
0: No, if you have a homeowner's association that's picky about your lawn, which that's a whole other can of worms that we can mm. get into another time. HOAs. But, uh, ugh. Ugh. Um, <laughs> but, you know... Yeah. A week longer isn't going to hurt anything. No. So, cut the amount of time that you spend mowing in half. hmm Um... When you do mow, if, you, if mowing is something that you enjoy, mm-hmm. uh, one thing that can help prevent animals, um, you know, insects and, like, ma- small mammals mm-hmm. included... Um, it can prevent them from getting hurt by your lawnmower if you start in the middle of your lawn and work your way out because then the animals have a chance to get out of the way, basically. Like, you've alerted them to, the, to your presence and they have a chance to get away before you mow them down. Have
1: you ever seen Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim? I've
0: never heard of this.
1: Oh my gosh, it's a great children's book. Um, but it's about these mice that live out in a meadow. Anyway, it... You telling me that just reminded me of when they're, like, trying to outrun the plow. And, like, they, the, like, big problem in the book is one of the kids is sick with pneumonia and they can't move out of their normal home in the meadow to their summer home out near the woods where the farmer doesn't plow. Good and they have to, like, I don't know, race against the clock to stay as long as possible but not get run over by the mower. I need to read that book again. Like I know it's a kids book, but it's so cute.
0: Yeah, that sounds cute. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the next thing that you can do that's no effort. Mm-hmm. So the next thing you cannot do, I guess. Yeah. Skip weeding. Yeah. Unless you know that a weed is invasive or somehow dangerous, just leave it alone. It's less effort for you. It's not going to hurt your back. Yeah. And so-called weeds, like dandelions, are a great food source, both for pollinators and for you, because you can't eat dandelions. That and
1: dandelions are just pretty. Like, I've always liked They their... are
0: pretty. Like, like, wildflowers, dandelions, like, just leave them...
1: Leave them, be. leave them be. Let them do their thing.
0: If it's not actively encroaching on, like, food crops that you're growing or something... Yeah,
1: don't, like...
0: Does it really need to break your back moving them?
1: My dream. No. My dream is to have like land with wildflowers all throughout the yard, and mm-hmm. then like trails out to the specific herb garden and the specific vegetable patch or whatever. Oh my
0: gosh, like the like the f- uh, the flower field in Howl's Moving Castle. Yes.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Precisely.
0: Yeah. Okay, so I have one more no-effort suggestion for combating habitat loss. Okay. Leave dead plants and branches for cavity-dwelling pollinators like mason bees. So if a branch oh, okay. falls off of your tree, as long as it's not an active hazard, because sometimes they can be dangerous, Yeah. just leave it there.
1: Yeah, or if you even wanted, like... Or move it to the
0: edge of your yard, but don't, like, completely remove it. Yeah, like, put it
1: all in, have, like, a wood pile that you don't use that all those bees can live in. Yep. Yeah. Those are all great Mm -hmm. ideas.
0: Yeah. So, those three suggestions literally require less effort than whatever you were originally already doing.
1: Yeah, I like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because people are lazy, so... I am... You, Why not not be lazier? You
1: know I'm lazy and will take any opportunity to indeed be lazier.
0: So, in terms of combating pesticide use, Mm -hmm. do not use chemical pesticides unless absolutely necessary.
1: There are lots of other more natural methods if you're having a problem with um, insects.
0: Yeah, like, for example, Mm -hmm. um, there are these green Japanese beetles that are invasive in certain parts of the U.S. Yeah. And there's a certain type of trap that you can get for them that uses their mating pheromone as an attractant, and then it catches them in a bag, and they can't get out.
1: I love pheromone traps. I love the idea of them. Because
0: because it's the beetle pheromone, Mm -hmm. it's not going to attract any other animals other than that particular pest. So you're not going to have any of the accidental effects where you're killing bees as well as the beetles. And for um, that in particular, Mm -hmm. since the uh, beetles aren't being given anything that's going to, you know, make them poisonous, I've seen that some people will freeze the bag and then use them as a protein source for pet chickens
1: oh okay I like that one I feel like I saw something like yeah. that on TikTok the other day yeah it's some kind of thing it was like it looked like a bag or something that they had somehow they had put something in to attract like just this one type of beetle and then they use it to feed their chickens I love that kind of thing Faith,
0: that's exactly what I just told you about
1: oh I'm sorry ma'am <laughs> it's okay. I'm teasing you. It looked like it. Up, um, it looked like a ziploc bag. A pheromone trap sounded fancy.
0: Yeah, it, it just has like a pheromone pellet thing inside. Oh, mm-hmm.
1: I thought it was like a fancy looking trap. My bad.
0: Nope, it's actually pretty simple, and you can get it at most uh, landscape stores. Again, <laughs> man. Um... You should also, like, when you can, advocate for pesticide bans. Many of the chemicals that we use to kill pests in the U.S. are illegal in the European Union. Mm -hmm. In the European Union.
1: The EU, yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. For example, imidacloprid, a deadly neonicotinoid that I have done quite a bit of research on. Ooh. In the lab that I worked in. Yeah. There's not much that an individual person who's not like a beekeeper can do in terms of pathogens. Yeah. But, you know, if you have out like the bee hotels, yeah. Um just clean them in the off season, and that can help a little bit.
1: Okay, like I don't know, in the late fall, give them give them a little cleaning. Yeah. Like turn Oh, like okay. turn down service. Yeah. In the hotel. All right. <laughs> room
0: service
1: room service um
0: okay i have one more thing for you before we go okay
1: all
0: right things are bleak but we are not yet past the point of no return yay yeah we are not yet past the point of no return awesome. like in phantom of the opera <laughs> um, faith what is the most american animal you can think of
1: bald eagle
0: Eey- <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> indeed the bald eagle nearly went extinct in the 60s and 70s due to various factors, including habitat loss, poaching, and the pesticide DDT causing their eggshells to weaken.
1: I remember. Faith, I remember what, having to watch a documentary about that.
0: Faith, did the bald eagle go extinct? Nope. The ban on DDT, protections from the Endangered Species Act and captive breeding and reintroduction efforts all helped reverse the bald eagle's decline. In 2007, the Interior Department officially declared the bald eagle fully recovered and removed it from the endangered species list.
1: Really? That's awesome. I didn't know Mm -hmm. they were removed from the endangered species list.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. If we work hard and spread the word and take genuine conservation action both personally and politically Mm -hmm. we can bring pollinators back from crisis it's not the end of the road here yet and that's
1: a good story to tell Mm -hmm. of like hey we've done it before we can do it again
0: yes the next several years are crucial so we do need to take action quickly but we are not at the point where all hope is lost okay so I'm gonna leave you on that hopeful note. Thank you for sticking with us through our pollinator extravaganza episode. Yes, this is
1: gonna be like the longest episode yet.
0: No, that's the B movie one. Oh, the,
1: you're <laughs> right. The B movie one is longer.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, um, you know, keep my tips in mind and hashtag save the bees. Hashtag and save the bees. The pollinators and you know all that stuff. All right. Bye. Bye.